Father, here we are, and in the silence of our own hearts, just now, we want to ask you that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, it's a a big thing for us, these tiny human beings, to ask for, and yet we know that it's what you desire to do. And so here we are, God, and we're asking in the silence of our own hearts, we're opening our hearts, inviting your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Thank you, Father. You are so good. And we pray that you'd reveal more of that goodness to us this morning, that we would be led to see more than ever how beautiful you truly are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He walked into the room. As he walked into the room, that moment he had been waiting for for a really long time. Some families in this room know a little bit about it. He, it was a wedding feast, and he had been looking forward to this for quite some time. He'd made the preparations. He'd worked towards this moment. And you can imagine just the joy in his heart as he walked into the room and he began to scan the room. All the preparations had been made. Everything was ready at this point. And as he looked around the room, he was just enjoying that moment of sweet fellowship when something happened. Something that pierced his heart. Something that that brought him intense agony. Something that you and I can barely understand. But it was so hard for him to see this. But as he looked, sure enough, It was the reality of what was taking place. It's not all too different to what God did in Genesis chapter 3. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. We've looked a few times at this, but I encourage you to keep digging into Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3 because these are foundational for the entire rest of Scripture. It gives us this foundation to understand what else is revealed in Scripture and why we are in the world that we're in today, in the mess that we're in. Genesis chapter 3, after they had chosen to eat from the tree that they weren't going to eat of, and we talked last week and the week before about how God had given them this incredible freedom, that they could go and eat of any tree on the entire planet, 196 million square miles of trees that God commanded them to freely eat from. And here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, it says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? You see, the words that are used here in Hebrew, when it says that he came walking, they heard the sound of him walking in the garden. It's in the Hithbael tense in the Hebrew, which means it's like a continuous action. It's, a, it's a, a common thing that God would just come walking in the garden. This was something he was used to doing, and as he came, he's, suddenly his friends aren't responding to him as usual. And he knows what's happened, but he gives them the chance to explain themselves. Where are you? So he said, I heard your... So Adam responded... I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was, what does it say? Naked. Is Adam naked here? Yes. Good answer, because he just said he was. Is Adam physically naked at this point? Think about it. We skipped over some verses here in the story, but let's look back at verse 7. 
after they eat the fruit of the tree, what does it say? Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves what? Coverings. Are Adam and Eve naked when they're hiding behind the trees? Not physically. And yet, there is a nakedness, a barrenness of soul that they feel before the Almighty God because they have bought the lie. They've gone with the path of selfishness. They have left behind this purity of heart and they have joined themselves to God's enemy. They've chosen another master. And they're feeling the shame, the reproach, the, the agony of being separated from God. And he describes it as, I'm naked. <laughs> it doesn't matter I've got fig leaves on. I still am naked. Behind this tree, I'm naked and I'm hiding because it's just not cutting it. These fig leaves aren't cutting it for me. This just isn't working out. God is so good. Because as he goes on in the coming verses to describe to the serpent what his punishment is going to be and what he's going to do, we looked at this verse last week, but this is the first gospel promise in the New Testament. It's called the Proto, the Old Testament, called the Proto Evangelion, the first gospel promise. Genesis 3 and verse 15, it says this And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This promise that, that God is going to step in through the lineage of Eve, through Adam and Eve, and is going to provide a son who will be the righteous one to take the place of Adam's fall and to, to represent and to eventually crush Satan. With that in mind, skip down to, we're going to go to the end of the chapter, and we're going to go to verse 20. In verse 20, it says this, And Adam called his wife's name, what does it say? Eve. Do you know what Eve means? A lot of times in the Old Testament, we don't have to guess because it goes on to tell us. Because she was the mother of all living. It means life. So here's this picture that, that Eve is going to be the path through which life is still going to happen on the planet. Even though they have chosen the path of death, there's this promise that there's going to come a substitute who is going to fix this problem for them and to bring them life. And so here is it saying that Adam is the mother of all living. It's saying that she is going to be the one through whom the Messiah comes and the Messiah is the one who's going to bring life back to this planet. Does that make sense? And with that in mind, look at the next verse. Verse 21. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. This is a beautiful thing to think about. To think about God as the seamstress. I remember back when I was in uh, home ec school, home ec class when I was a, a sophomore in high school and I had to go with the freshman class because I hadn't been going to that school my freshman year. And I remember being so excited to learn how to sew. Not really, actually. <laughs> but I remember when we did our first project and we made these shorts. And when we made these shorts, I wore them the very next day to school. They were tie-dye. And I wore them to school. I was so excited about them that I got the sewing award. 
for having so much excitement about them, not really because I was the best seamstress. Really, the girls had helped me to make it, but that's a whole another part of the story. But here, can you imagine what the clothes would be like that God made for Adam and Eve? And it's fascinating because back in verse 7, you notice that it says that Adam and Eve, they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves coverings. Up until this point in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 1, the only person who has done any making, this Hebrew word asaf, or to do or to make, the only one who's done that up to this point is God. But all of a sudden, they're stepping in and they're attempting to make something to cover up their shame and their sinfulness, and it doesn't work so well. They're have stepped away from their Creator and they're trying to fill in the gaps in their lives. And I do that all too often. (laughs) I turn to my own devisings, my own ways of figuring out my problems, my own way of thinking, well, God said that in His Word. That's true, but really? I think this is a lot better. I I tend to, to try to fix all of the issues, all of the things that I'm going through in my own strength. I tend to try to try to add to myself when I come to church to make sure that, hey, when I come to church, I look like a righteous person and I look like I have it all together. Do we ever do that in church? Do we ever pretend like the last week wasn't a chaotic week? Like everything's perfectly fine and when somebody asks you how you're doing, it's fine. But when God comes to us, He knows it all. He knows what's going on in our lives and He cares. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is trying to describe this, this, this picture of what he longs to do for us that is very similar to what he did for Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve were given these garments of clothed by, clothing by God himself. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is telling a parable. In verse 1, it says, Jesus answered and spoke to them again, by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who arranged a marriage of his son. Today we're saying he is exalted. The king is exalted. God himself is king of kings and lord of lords. Here you have a king who is throwing a marriage, arranging a marriage for his son. A king arranging a marriage for his son. Does this ring any bells for you when you think about the Bible? What is Jesus trying to get across to them? He's giving them the picture of what Revelation 19 tells us, that there is going to be this wedding feast of the Lamb where everybody comes to celebrate what Jesus has done in making humanity reunited with divinity. This is a very important parable because it reveals to us that Seeing that moment when we are reunited with God in heaven, what's going to, to, to get us to that place? And that's one of the most crucial questions we can ask. Verse 3, And sent out his servants, he's arranged this wedding, to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Have you ever sent out an invitation to a, pri- a party, a birthday party, a celebration, and and had very few people show up. Sometimes we've had a special program here at church, and the timing hasn't worked out exactly right. And we've had, one time we had a concert here where somebody 
came and they sang and we were like, ah, we wish that a couple more people would have been able to accept this invitation at this point. They were not willing to accept the invitation. They weren't willing to to be a part of this amazing thing that the king had planned for them. So watch what the king does. He doesn't stop there. Sometimes we think that, that God is trying to do everything possible. We talked about this last week, that he just wants an excuse to keep us out of heaven. That he wants whatever possible reason he can come up with in order to keep us from being able to experience eternal life. But notice what Jesus says about the king. The king sends one invitation and they're not willing. They don't respond. And he doesn't stop there. It continues in verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants. Hey, maybe I'll try to send some different servants. Maybe these ones will be more convincing to him, to to the guests. And look at what he adds. He has them add something to the invitation. Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Ready. I don't think you got it. All things are what? Ready. Everything is prepared. He says, I have slain the fatted calf. I've slain the oxen. I have made this feast. Everything is prepared for you. Completely ready. So come to the wedding. He's giving them an invitation that how much is required from them in order to participate in this invitation? Everything has been provided. They just need to respond to the invitation. They need to be willing to come along. But look at what happens. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. You know, it can be good things in life that distract us from the invitation that God is making. It could be our farm. It could be our business. It could be a myriad of things in our lives that sucks up our time, that that keeps us too busy, that, that... that says, well, Jesus, I want to give you all. I want to spend time with you. I want all of this, but how about tomorrow? There's a myriad of things that can distract us and keep us away that that maybe aren't even bad things. A lot of my life, it wasn't necessarily terrible things that were keeping me away from God. For these guys, it's, it's their farm. It's their business. Those are important things. They need to be about their farming. They need to be about their business. But because of that, they reject the invitation. Verse 6, and the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. So there's some who are reacting a little bit more violently to the invitation, which is crazy. And Jesus is trying to get that across, how crazy it is that here he comes offering this gift of eternal life, offering to, to, to come and to bring life to the Jews. And they're about ready to try to put him to death. And they've done that with the prophets. And Jesus keeps pointing that out. Verse 7, But when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. This is a little prophecy in miniature of what's going to take place to the Jews when they reject the invitation. They put the Messiah to death. God doesn't physically come with his angelic army, but he allows for King the king to come in and destroy Jerusalem in AD 70 and Jerusalem is entirely destroyed. So it's a little prophecy here that Jesus is giving them this glimpse. If you reject this invitation, you reject this offer, 
you're separating yourselves from life. It's going to hurt in the end. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be worthy? What does it take in order to be worthy? How can I be worthy of the grace, the love, all that God wants to give me in my life? How can I be worthy of heaven? What does it take to become a worthy person? In the end, what will it be that enables me to stand before God and be worthy? Well, in this story, exactly. It's not anything that these people could have done because all was made ready. But they rejected the invitation. They hardened their hearts. They refused to participate in the good things that the king had already prepared for them, already had ready for them. Verse 9, Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So he says, take the invitation broader. Invite everyone possible to be a part of this. This is the good news about who God is. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it tells us that God is not slack or God is not slow about his promises, but that he is patient and not willing that any should be lost. You wonder why time stretches on so long? It's because God isn't willing that you be lost. God doesn't wants to do whatever it takes to save every single person possible on the planet. He's doing everything possible. He's prepared everything, and He's giving the invitation. Today, He's giving you the invitation. And if you haven't accepted that invitation, I encourage you, take Him up on it, just like David and Roxana did. Say, I'm in, God. I accept the invitation. If you've accepted it in the past, today's a great day to refresh that acceptance of it. It's pretty fascinating to see, though, what takes place as we continue in the story. Verse 10, So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so that moment comes. He's excited because finally people have accepted the invitation. They are coming to the wedding feast. He's prepared it. He's been so excited. And this is how heaven feels when you come to Jesus. When you turn your heart over to him, when you say, okay, God, I accept this invitation. I accept that you have prepared this for me and I want in. There is rejoicing in heaven in that moment. So the king comes and he comes to see what is taking place. And this is a picture of what is taking place in heaven right now. It's a fascinating thing to see how God always comes to his people And there's this idea like he did with Adam and Eve that he comes to examine and to figure out the choices that are being made. Are people choosing to accept the gift of infinite grace that I've given them? Or are they choosing to reject it? So when the king came in to see the guests, he comes in to see what are the choices that are being made. These people have decided to be at the wedding feast. These are people who have said, I want to take advantage of this offer. We could say, these are people who say, I'm a Christian. Does that make sense in this parable? They say, I accept Jesus. And here they are, they're coming to the wedding feast, and the king comes to examine his guests. I picture it that he comes with delight. 
He comes to say, hey, look at these people who, ah, I'm so glad they've accepted this invitation. I'm so glad that they're finally here. And just look at how, how, what, how much glory this is going to bring to my son as they celebrate this wedding feast. All of his sacrifice for them is going to be worthwhile. And then as he looks around at the crowd, there's something wrong. Verse 11 continues, He saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. When you prepare to go to a wedding, I know that you tend to, if, if I told you, think about this, if I told you that, that you were going to be able to be invited to a royal wedding. We recently witnessed a royal wedding. I think the whole world was watching. I actually didn't see much about it. But this wedding that takes place, imagine that you get this invitation to a royal wedding. What is one of the first thoughts that comes through your mind? A lot of you are going to be thinking, what am I going to wear? How am I going to dress for this royal wedding? Well, there's good news in this story because as the king comes, it's with the assumption that why didn't you wear that wedding garment? It's with the assumption that that something has already been provided. You see, the all things that were provided were not just the, the festivities, not just the food, not just those things to enjoy, but the wedding garment itself for you to show up, for you to be there in His presence, for you to be worthy, that wedding garment was provided by the King. So this invitation that people are rejecting, I mean, people, I imagine that the messengers are coming around and they have garments to give to people to say, hey, you want to come to this wedding? Here's what you could wear. And they're saying, no, that's all right. I don't want it. But if you But apparently, this guy says, I want to come. And then he chooses to wear his own stuff. This past week, I had the privilege of attending Anne's wedding up in Oregon. And Lee and I really enjoyed that. And I had to think about, what am I going to wear? But I think it would have been so much better. And I think Mark and Linda are really generous people. And it was a beautiful wedding. And they had things, pretty much everything ready. But they did not offer me clothing. (laughs) So if you're going to get married soon... I wouldn't mind. (laughs) I think at least. I'll pass it by my wife. But imagine, the wedding garment has been provided for you. You don't have to decide what to wear. You know that you can show up and that He already has made provision. All things are ready. Let that sink deep into your hearts today. There is absolutely nothing that you can add to what Jesus has done for you. There's absolutely nothing that, that will make you worthy. Jesus has paid the price it's an infinite price it's expensive it doesn't make it cheap but it's been provided for completely for you to go and to accept the invitation but the key thing is here he's missing out on the wedding garment he doesn't wear the wedding garment recently there was somebody who ran a marathon in i believe it was sydney australia i'll put a picture up of him here on the on the screen I don't know how many of you have ever run a marathon before. I know Jeff isn't here this morning, to, but he's run a marathon. This man is running a marathon, Matthew, and he's running it to set the Guinness Book of World Records for running a marathon. And he does it in a three-piece suit. 
He's getting, going to set the Guinness Book of World Records for running a marathon in a three-piece suit. And he actually smashed the record. You see him there. He's exhausted in his wool suit. I can't imagine the amount of sweat. Is That's not very breathable. But he did wear running shoes, so that, that made it a little bit better for him. But he completed this marathon in two hours and 44 minutes. This is incredible. If you've ever tried to run a mile, he's averaging six minute and 16 second miles for 26.2 miles. Most of us in this room would come nowhere near running a six minute mile. And he just did it for 26 miles wearing a suit. Now suits are are fine things. Suits might be okay for a pastor to wear to church. But suits and marathons don't mix very well. This guy, it's an incredible feat that he did because that's not the occasion. That's not the place to wear these things. This parable tells us about somebody who comes to the wedding and they're wearing the wrong dress. They're wearing their normal garments. They have refused the offer of the wedding dress. Go with back to me to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, notice what comes immediately after God clothes Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, we'll, we'll go to verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. They've chosen to be separated from God, and, and God sends them out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he sends him out with a new mission, a new project. No longer is he tending the trees and doing these things, but now he is a farmer tilling the soil. And as he goes out to do that, right before sending him out, what does he do? What does he give him? He first gave him garments. He first clothed him back in verse 21. Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed them. And then sent him out to farm. You see how God is providing for the work that Adam needs to do. He's providing what is, it's, he needs in order to be able to handle the work that he's got to do. But even more than that, this represents something incredibly important. Because we can, we can deduce from this by reading between the lines Where does God get the skin of animals in order to be able to clothe them? It doesn't say that God killed any animals. It says that God made with skins this clothing. I believe that here you find where the sanctuary system is actually initially set up. Because after this, in chapter 4, when Cain and Abel come, it's expected that they know what they're supposed to sacrifice. That they're not to bring fruit, but they're to bring a lamb. The Bible doesn't give us all of the details. And so as we read it, we have to say, hmm, why did they know that? Could it be that as God clothed them, that Adam and Eve did just like they do in the sanctuary service in Leviticus chapter 1, when they would confess their sins over the head of that animal, the sacrificial animal. And then the one who committed the sin was the one who actually slit the throat of that animal. Adam and Eve had to be participants in that sacrificial death which pointed them to that gospel promise that yes, there was coming a seed who was going to crush the serpent's head, but in the process of crushing his head, he was going to receive a mortal wound on their behalf. 
So this is the beautiful thing. Here they, 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 they sacrifice these animals and the skin is taken and the skin is made by God into this beautiful clothing where now they are wearing the very representation of their Savior. That's what they wear as they go about their work, as they go about their business. They have a constant reminder of who Jesus is going to be to them, who the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is going to be to them. They have this protection from the heat and the cold. They have this protection from their nakedness that's given to them by God Himself because all things are still made ready for them through the blood of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is sufficient for them. And He gives them what they need in order to fulfill their mission. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, where we find this picture of a wedding feast, and in chapter 22, it tells us that the Spirit and the bride say, come. There's this invitation to the wedding feast, just like you see taking place in this parable that Jesus is telling. But in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, it talks about the bride who comes to the Lamb. We'll start in verse 7, actually. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? Verse 8. And to her it was, what does it say? Granted. Does that mean that she is the one that's done this? Is she the active agent in this verb that's being used? To her it was granted, it was given, it was bestowed on her. It was a gift to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. And then look at it, it describes what this represents. What is this, this imagery about being clothed with Christ? What is this all about? For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That sounds a little confusing because righteousness isn't a word that we use all that often. We've talked about before that righteousness is equated to holiness, which is equated to likeness to God. Mount of Blessings tells us that. It's, it, it's being like God, and God is love. Righteousness is fulfilling the law, and Romans 13.10 tells us that love is the fulfilling of the law. In fact, let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 gives us the same picture of telling us to put on Christ and to put on His righteousness in our lives. Romans chapter 13, and we'll go to verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now skip down, it begins to tell us how the urgency of having this love in our hearts in the coming verses, but, but look down in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So here's the, the old man, as Colossians talks about on the one hand, but verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, to fulfill its lust. Put on the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put Him on as a garment so that you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Put on Jesus. This 
points us back to what God did for Adam and Eve. How He gave them the garments that represented what Jesus was going to do for them by faith. Today, we are challenged to look back and to put on Jesus. And what does that really look like? We see this repeated different times in the New Testament. If you look at over in, uh, we'll go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, talking about the new man. If you pick it up in verse 9, it says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man. There's a putting off of, of an old self. That's like what takes place when we choose to be baptized like David and Roxana did today. Put off the old man. And verse 10, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Verse 12 unpacks it. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of of perfection. Putting on Christ means to put on, what is it equating it to here? Love. That we become a loving person. The righteous acts of the saints, which in the very end of the wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation tells us that, that God's people wear a beautiful, sparkling wedding garment that's a representation of the righteous act of the saints. That could be a little intimidating. You could say in this parable about that, that, that of the invitation that's made and to the wedding guest that's made that on the one hand you have the invitation being, hey, you can come to the wedding, all is made ready. And we might compare that, compare that to the big word justification. Have you heard that word before? People are invited to come, both good and bad. Everyone is invited to be a part of this and everything is made ready for you. And then when the king comes and he begins to look and he begins to examine and he begins to see what is taking place, he's looking for a wedding garment. He's looking for those that have put on the character of Christ. And as he does that, he sees somebody who has rejected the offer. Because remember, the wedding garment is given. It's granted, Revelation 19, verse 8 tells us. It's, it's given. The king is the one who brings the wedding garment to everybody. They have this opportunity. It is their prerogative to take this on. Baptism itself is a special representation of this. Look over in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse, verse 26 and 27. It says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's good news, David and Roxana. You've put on Christ. You've been given this incredible gift. You've been given something that was prepared fully for you in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And that is something that, 
that we read, it begins to, to transform our hearts. It begins to, to make us into the people that God longs for us to be. And it's all done through Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 sums this up and what God does in creating for us this special garment. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You're invited to this. It's free. You can come. There is nothing you can add to the invitation. It's a free gift. Verse 9 confirms it. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not based on anything you can add to the equation of what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's completed in full in Jesus Christ. And the good news is that it continues in verse 10 and says, For we are His workmanship. We're designed by God. Not just something that's put on over us, but the very fiber of who we are and what we become is something that God wants to do in us. Not anything that we can do. But we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, this is incredible news. Because I long to be a more loving person. I long in my life to have the type of love that Jesus displayed towards the Father. I want to have that kind of love for God, don't you? Jesus kept all of His Father's commandments perfectly, and He said in Psalm chapter 40, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. And that resulted in His life, in Him radically loving people. In Him going around and and bringing life to people, setting at liberty the captives, those who were bound in sin, those who were bound by disease, Jesus set them free time and time again. And He did it because He loved people. And He wants to give you the same gift of love. It's Christ's righteousness applied to your life that God is longing for you and I to put on. When he goes into the wedding feast, the king arrives and he says, it's, it's fascinating what he says to the man. Look at, in Matthew chapter 22. When he talks to the man, Matthew chapter 22, he's so gracious to him. Verse 12, after he's come and he sees that he's not wearing the wedding garment that he provided for him to wear, says, so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He had nothing to say. It had all been provided for him. 100% by Jesus Christ. And it's been provided for you. The question today is, will we take it on in our lives? Because that's what Jesus is longing to do. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the gospel promise followed by them being clothed by the very sacrifice that was made for their sins to represent the Messiah. If you fast forward to Luke, and you find Jesus on the cross fulfilling that gospel promise, He is the gospel. He is the one who crushes the serpent and who takes the mortal wound for you. He's the one who went through hell for you. 
You don't have to be afraid of hell because Jesus went through hell for you. Jesus took all of your sin upon Himself. He took all of the punishment. He exhausted it for you. So will you accept the invitation? (laughs) That's His question. Because you don't have to. He won't force you to accept the invitation. And if we don't accept the invitation, then we will not be worthy of the gift proffered. But if we simply don't resist (laughs) and we let His love draw us, it will change everything. And at the cross, it changed everything. But because before that, you see his disciples as groveling, jealous people who couldn't get along. And then you find after the cross, look at Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. Luke chapter 24, the end of the gospel. After the cross, after the resurrection, Jesus comes to them and he says this to them. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But... Terry, that's an old word for wait. Don't do anything yet. The sacrifice has been offered, but in order for it to be worked out in your life, wait for something. The cross accomplished everything, but the cross doesn't finish the work in our hearts. He says there's something more needed. Wait in the city of Jerusalem until I send the promise of my Father upon you until you are, what does it say? Endued with power from on high. The word there, endued, is enduo, so it's good that they use this word, but it's not a common word. I don't normally say, well, I endue you with, it's not a very common way to talk. Other versions, more modern versions, will say you are clothed with power because this is the same word that's used in Ephesians and Colossians to say put on the new man. Put it on. Here Christ is saying you are going to receive the promise from the Father, which last week we looked at, and the promise is that He desperately wants to do this. And it's based on the fact of His loving character that how much more won't your Father in heaven give this gift to you? He wants to give it to you. He wants to give this righteousness to you which will lead you to love God and to love people, which will inspire that in you. He will work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And this is what the disciples do. They go into the upper room and they begin to wait and they begin to to pray for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And as they wait, as they pray, God finally pours out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 in such a powerful and dramatic way. I'm excited for our upcoming Sabbath school lesson. If you haven't gotten one or you want to be a part of it, ask somebody about it. Ask a Sabbath school teacher about it because every morning at 9.30 we study the Bible and it's a powerful thing every, every Saturday morning. But in Christ Object Lessons it says this, page 311. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with His heart. The will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of His righteousness. He wants for you literally, when you walk around, that people see Jesus. They experience Jesus because you are endued with power from on high. You are filled with the Holy Spirit and you're wrapped in the Holy Spirit, you're walking in the Spirit, as Galatians says, then as the Lord looks upon us, He sees not the fig leaf garment. You see here the language of what took place in them sewing and making, trying to come up with their own righteousness. 
not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. And just think about what this did for the church. Just think about what happened in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we find that they're meeting from house to house. They're breaking bread together. They're holding all things in common. And it says, if anybody had need, they were meeting the needs of those people. It's love to the fullest is being unleashed. And then it says, and people were being added to the church. You find that happening again in the next chapter. And in Acts chapter 5, again and again, it's describing this fellowship that they had and that they are sharing and that they're giving and that they're loving radically because they have been endued with the righteousness of Jesus Christ through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do you see why it's important to ask for the Holy Spirit? Because this is how we're endued. This is how we are clothed with Jesus. This is how we put on Christ. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we become like Jesus. It's nothing that we can come up with on our own. But everything has been provided. The wedding garment is ready for you and I. So what does this look like for us as individuals? What does this look like for us as individual people? It's interesting to read in a book by Timothy Keller, Center Church. There's a guy by the name of Kreider, Alan Kreider, who researched the historian's account of why the church exploded in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have this church that's exploding in the midst of an a environment that was harmful to Christianity. An environment where it was far harder to preach the gospel than it is here in America today. And yet the church was exploding. And Kreider researching like Tertullian and different historians and Christians and what they're writing, he says this, Kreider goes on to make a strong historical case that Christians' lives, their concern for the weak and the poor, their integrity in the face of persecution, their economic sharing, their sacrificial love even for their enemies, and the high quality of their common life together attracted non-believers to the gospel. He's basically saying that when historians write about the Christian church at this time, what they write about is that these Christians, they're united. These Christians, they're loving. They love their enemies. They, they, Tertullian said the blood of martyrs is seed. They would watch them go and be eaten by lions and they see the joy, they see the willingness, they see their delight in dying for Jesus. And other people were flocking to become Christians. They saw how they shared, how they gave, how they loved, and what they did in other people's lives. And people were attracted to Christianity. Not just by the message that was preached, but by the lives that the church lived. You don't find in Acts that there's a place you go to saying, hey, this is the Christian church. And that's because in the New Testament, you and I are the church. We call this the Templeton Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church. But you and I are the church. When you go to work, when you interact with your neighbor, when you are in the community, wherever you go, when you're here at church, this is church because you're here. If you weren't here, we wouldn't be able to have church because church represents God's people who are endued with power, filled with the Holy Spirit, and representing Jesus. Today I want to show a video clip that I attempted to show to you previously um, that describes... A little bit, a little glimmer of a church that took it seriously to be the church, to be Jesus' representative in the community. As we watch this, it's not that this church is perfect, but it's a church that about 
15 or so years ago, they had around 200 members, and they began to ask the question, if this church wasn't here anymore, would the community even notice? So I want you to to watch this video of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in British Columbia, the church in the valley, and what God did there. Over 15 years ago, the Alder Grove Seventh-day Adventist Church in British Columbia, Canada, asked themselves the question, if the doors of our church were to close today, would anyone in the community even notice? Brutally honest answer that came back to them was no one would notice. So the church intentionally set out to make a lasting impact in their community through service and named their Adventist Community Services Outreach Program, Acts of Kindness, or AOK. The church began to grow spiritually and numerically as a result. The congregation grew so much they needed a larger facility. We didn't want to build a church just for us. We wanted to bring community people to church who normally wouldn't maybe attend a church. We wanted it to be a facility that the community would use. So in 2015, the Church in the Valley, formerly the Alder Grove Adventist Church, opened their new facility designed with many features to serve the community. We involve people in ministry based on the knowledge, skills, and passions that they already have. If you have gifts of cooking, you can use cooking as a way of evangelism. You're a mechanic, you can fix cars and give them away to moms that are in need. Using their three-bay automotive garage, the Cars for Moms ministry gives away, on average, a car a month. It's a ministry of God bringing that person together with the right vehicle and giving them a new chance. Fix the cars and do what's needed to get people back on the road again. They regularly host a single mom's oil change, a special event for kids and moms alike. People don't realize how much, as a single parent, living on a very fixed budget and very fixed income, how much something like an oil change can mean to you and how it can help you. The AOK Center has a food pantry, a clothing pantry, and a full suite for emergency and guest lodging. We have had thousands of people come through this facility from the community. People are being introduced to who Seventh-day Adventists are. AOK reaches far beyond the borders of the church property. For over 20 years, they have run a breakfast club at a local elementary school for children in need. They have nourishment, they can do better in school, which means that they'll be able to do better in life. And every kid needs that chance. Acts of Kindness has been helping me out my whole life. Every morning, my mom couldn't afford daycare, so she'd drop us off at school. They would feed us every morning, and it was always so good. AOK also runs an amazing program called Extreme Home Repair to repair and rebuild homes of those in their community that desperately need help. Extreme Home Repair started in 2004, and so this is our 14th year. See that girl on the ladder back there? She was a recipient in 2010. She had asthma, mold on the windows, health issues. But after the renovation, I haven't been to the hospital since. Her and her brother have come every year to keep helping out, to pay it forward. It changed so much for me, and it wasn't just the house being renovated, but it was seeing hundreds of people who worked on my house put in so much time and effort and love. Extreme Home Repair isn't about their home. It's about their lives. We want to put their lives back together again. Oh, I had just lost my son Christopher to cancer, and I really wasn't sure 
how much they could actually do. So when, when it came to the day and I saw the crowd of people just waiting for me to see my house and I knew right then and there that it was probably the most beautiful thing. The church couldn't bring my son back to me, but what they did was they brought my life back to me. It does change your life, it really does. And I became a member of this church. I found Jesus. Like when people give themselves like that and there's camaraderie and there's a lot of heart, it renews people because we go through life and we get these knocks. And it's exciting to, to volunteer and know you're changing someone's life. We are not here for ourselves. We're here for the community. If this church closed its doors tomorrow, it would be sorely missed by our community. When our Adventist churches catch a vision of service, our denomination will explode throughout North America because Adventist community services and acts of kindness, that's what makes a difference in people's lives. That's what opens up their hearts and their minds to any possibility of growing spiritually. incredible to see what God can do in a church, isn't it? Remember, it's God who's prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not that we walk in another person's model. It's not that we go and do what they've done. But we begin to pray, God, would you endue us with power? Would you clothe us with power? That church went from, they've baptized 300 new members. They have 550 members, but more than that attending on Sabbath. Not a perfect church, but a church that's loving people. And this is a very loving church, and I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful that God is opening up doors for us to begin to have a bigger and bigger influence in the community. We've already had the experience of the Hope Clinic and the blessing of that. I still get phone calls on our answer machine. Thank you for that Hope Clinic that you do. It's amazing that you'd provide that. And God has just been throwing things towards us now where we have this garden project that tomorrow morning, if you'd like, you're welcome to come 6 to 10 a.m. I wish I'd be here. I'm going to be headed out on a study tour to Israel. Um, But tomorrow morning, there's going to be a work bee here to begin that project that is intentionally focused on impacting the community. And I've had people come to me and say, you know, it's great, this healthy eating thing, but when I go to the food bank... They don't have healthy options for me. You guys have a lot of land. Why don't you start a garden? (laughs) And then God opened up so many different doors and laid it on so many of your hearts and God gave us $15,000 to put towards it. So here we are and we're starting a garden. But that's not all that God wants to do. God wants to use you and your sphere of influence and God wants you to bring the ideas to this church together to say, hey, I see this need in the community. I see where this needs help. I see that we could help this person fix up their house. We could show up for this person. That's what Jesus has called us to do. And it breaks my heart when I get phone calls from people like I did just yesterday who said, hey, Years back, I asked for help from the church and nobody helped me. And I don't know the whole story. This could be that person's experience and their twist on things. But I don't want that to be said about this church. May we be the people who say, okay, Jesus, you've prepared good works beforehand. 
Let's walk in them. Let's love people to Jesus. If that's what you want, if you want to be a part of a church like that, I just want to invite you to stand as we pray and just to say, okay, God, I don't know how, but all things have been made ready by you. And so I'm willing, pour out your Holy Spirit on me. If it's your desire to be endued with power from on high, I just want to invite you to stand and say, God, I'm standing. And not everybody needs to stand. If you're not there, that's okay. But I'm standing and saying, God, endue me with power to love you and to love people in your strength and your strength alone. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, here we are standing. And God, we have some opportunities corporately. We have this opportunity to begin work on our garden tomorrow. And I pray that you bless that, that you would multiply it, that it would be a blessing to people in this congregation, that it would be a blessing to our community, that people would see that you care about them because you've planted that same care in our hearts for them. And God, I pray for each of us as individuals. God, I'm so sorry for the selfishness in my own heart, and I just want to ask for that wedding garment in my own life, God. Would you please endue us with power so that we don't go through our lives so focused on our business, so focused on our needs, that we reject the offer to help other people's lives be better. Oh God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us. May we be faithful to the call that you have given us. Lord, thank you that all things have been made ready. We accept your invitation. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.